Hey everyone, welcome back to Close Reads. I'm David Kern, and before we get you over to the show, I just wanted to say a quick word from our friends over at the Honors College at Belmont Abbey. You've heard us talk about them before, but just want to introduce them to you one more time to remind you that you can go over to bac.edu slash honors for more information. You can join a group of morally and intellectually serious young men and women seeking wisdom in their great books curriculum. With a number of flexible options, the Honors College allows you to take any major offered at Belmont Abbey College while exploring the greatest works by the most brilliant philosophers, poets, theologians, and historians in the Western tradition. Their distinctive approach affords you the opportunity to participate in the highest form of friendship, a shared life dedicated to the pursuit of wisdom. So if you have a student or are a student who might be interested in something like this, again, head over to bac.edu slash honors for more information. That's bac.edu slash honors. A life well-lived awaits you. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and as always on Close Reads, I am joined by two people who, like Maddie Ross, also mean business all the time, Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Angelina, has anyone ever said that about you, that you just always mean business all the time? Of course they do. That's, that's, my, that's, like, that's my tagline. <laughs> also, I think the phrase no nonsense is used about me a lot. Nonsense? Okay. Tim, do you think maybe she's making that up? <laughs> David, I think that she's making that up. Uh, you know, I, don't, I got a gun in my sugar sack that says otherwise, okay? No, it's true, though. So before I started reading it, this book, a friend of mine who's really into this book had, you know, he was very excited that I was going to read it. And so he was texting me. He was like, you're going to love Maddie Ross. She's so sassy. That's what he said. And I said, oh, good. You know, I love a good sassy heroine. He goes, wait, hold on. <laughs> it's not sassy like you think. It's more like no nonsense and i was like oh oh yeah that's not that's not my kind of sassy but but i I love her but yeah we had to clarify our terms and i thought what is wrong with you that you call no nonsense sassy we are are not playing from the same dictionary here we're like 23 seconds into the first episode on true grit and we have already discovered that angelina who has been browbeating and denigrating and insulting actors for the run of this show has turned into an actress herself i know that i Maybe it's because she just never met a role that she wanted to play until now. <laughs> That's no, a great I'm point. I'm not acting. I'm just active reading. I'm just playing make-believe. I'm just okay. over here having my own version of Cowboys and Indians. I never played that as a kid, apparently because I just never encountered a good cowgirl. That may be true. Well, we are here, as we have implied early in the show already, to discuss True Grit, Charles Portis's masterpiece and by many people considered one of the great American novels with one of the great American characters. Uh, Before we do that, though, we have some business to take care of. Um, We're going to talk about round one of the literary bracket here in a minute. So we're going to prepare yourselves, listeners, for Angelina and Tim to take to task your taste. Uh, But first, let's discuss um, what people have been asking for, some conversation on the next book. Now, it seems like there is some some controversy on this point because Tim claims... (laughs) That I don't include people, namely Angelina and Tim, in the conversations about so the next you, book. So you wait, could hear when we were talking wait, that your name was not flashing on the screen. Hmm. I, wait, David, I claim that? No, you do. Yes, you claim it. So go ahead and make your argument. So I, t- I talked to Angelina beforehand. I proposed okay, okay. the book. 
I didn't say that it was the I proposed a book, but you weren't here to hear that. And I said I was going to propose it on the air to you, and then we can have our conversation in front of everybody. But it seems like this is there's more controversy behind the scenes going on here. Perhaps a rebellion fermenting. He's fermenting. Uh, I think Tim feels like he doesn't have a voice. I would, Angelina. Feel... That might not be my fault here. <laughs> I I would feel I had a voice if I had a voice in choosing the books that we discussed. And and the fact that every time we we do a book, I propose either multiple options or I ask if you would like to do the book doesn't count. I take it. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Hold on. The last, what are the last two? Seriously, hold on. This is not, this is not true. These are leading questions that are leading. <laughs> I'm about to call forward. the marshal and put some law and order up in here, y'all. <laughs> we're just presenting, a, we're presenting a Wild West scenario for our Wild West book. Oh, no. What's your, what's Did your, um... discuss, you proposed true grit. I agree with that. That was, that was the proposal. You proposed the you proposed to Howard's End. What was the book we did before Howard's End? Twelfth Night. Gilead? Twelfth Night. No, you proposed things. That's not I have no uh I did not object to that as a valid truth statement. But <laughs> but I don't recall I don't recall being like, hey, do you like would you guys vote for this? Is this a book that you want to do? I don't recall that part of it. Anti-democracy. An so child? frankly, I'm glad we don't vote. Me? <laughs> He's an oldest child. I'm, We're a born. I'm used to getting my way. I know. <laughs> Look at three firstborns on this show. Got to cope, no, boy. I will. I, I will say that any any suggestions are implied. Implied in a suggestion is. Um, by the way, is one of your microphones on really hot? Because I'm getting some ticket. It might. Uh, I think it was hitting my glasses. We're okay. Good. Uh, okay. I moved, I moved it up. Okay. Where do you wear your glasses on that your mouth? That is because I um, gesticulate. I'm, my whole body is convulsing from this conversation. That's what's happening. Okay. Yeah, that's, conflict, that's why you're conflict. That tick, that's my, uh, I got a shoulder tick going down. Do you, Matt, Matt Bianco doesn't like, doesn't like banter, but do you think he likes conflict being aired on the show? I don't. I'm very, I want to edit all this. Out. I'm so uncomfortable right now. <laughs> well, the point is. I, however. I'm thoroughly I enjoying conflict. <laughs> I it took me a while as a teacher to discover that not everyone does, like enjoys conflict. So my first couple of years teaching in a public school in Atlanta, I mean, I spent so much time trying to create like argument in you know with students in class over contentious issues, and I was like, oh, this is so fun. Until finally, I just had one of the students just completely burst into tears, and I talked to her later and you know i kind of discovered you know things at home argumentation at home was not welcome and so all i was doing was just creating stress in the classroom yeah so i had to kind of modify my methods i still like to create discussion and disagreement but the modes have changed a little bit <laughs> yeah yeah well I i'm not sure exactly where this where we take this um tim Yes. Let it be known once and for all in front of the masses, publicly stated, that at any time you are free to duel, shall we say, draw uh -huh. quickly uh -huh. 
on any book choice that you don't that you think we should discuss further um when i throw a book title out it is uh with the assumption that if you do not want to read it you will push back should you do push I back stand the possibility of getting my way is that all this is about no 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 well <laughs> it's at least partly that it's sort of like saying this like um when venezuela votes 100% for their current dictator i guess he's out of no i think the last time venezuela had open elections 100% of the populace voted for the dictator and it's kind of like okay is that really democracy probably Wait, whoa, not whoa, whoa. i know whoever said this was a democracy <laughs> is it a wicked evil blight upon the face of mankind what are you talking about and what alternative do we propose what oh, alternative I'm, do we propose oh i'm a monarchist also oh. i'm an anarchist but you know so just ask me on different days of the week and i'll <laughs> answer differently but i love david's benevolent dictatorship i don't know what's wrong with you it's it's an oligarchy tim and angelina and i just happen to be the oligarchs <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm the ruled populace. Everybody loves an oligarchy when they're the oligarchs. Everyone loves um, a monarch when they get to choose the monarch. You know, I will say for an oldest person, for an oldest, for an oldest child, you don't say what you want very often. <laughs> I what? Hold on. That is not even true. That is so not true. <laughs> Tim is across the country, and yet I feel like I can see that little vein under his oh, yeah. neck. Yeah, we all know it. That, um, yeah, that's absolutely right. That is just not even true. Just to be clear, I am um, I am enjoying this and pushing buttons as an oldest oldest child sometimes does. Um, you should have seen okay, it coming. What are we Tim. doing? What are we doing? No, okay, yeah. So, so here's the proposal, and I think I think it would be fun to discuss on the air why or why why or why not we should do this book. My proposal. Um, and the reason I propose this book is that people have suggested on Facebook pages that they think we should do something lighter next. So my proposal is that we do uh, P.G. Woodhouse's best novel, The Code of the Woosters. Uh, it'd probably take us three, four episodes. It wouldn't. Be, it would be light. It'd be breezy. It'd be funny. It'd be fun. So that is my proposal. Between the two of you, I will allow you to each have make a case for why or why not we should do that, and if why not, what book you would propose, and then I will tell you that you are wrong. I mean, I will listen and I will uh, go ahead, Tim. What do you think? Well, Angelina, what do you think? You go first. Oh, yeah, start with me. When you gave me this uh, talk off the air, I think my response was, "Yay, I'm down for that." So that's my official opinion. Um, and Tim, I, I maybe it is possible that you could convince me that this is the wrong choice of books. It's certainly not the wrong choice of books. Um, <laughs> we've already we've already done one. We did we've a done, short, we did one story, a short story. Yeah, that's true. We did one story, one episode, two um, years ago, two and a half years ago. But do you? Do you have no a, one listened to us. Do you, do you have a book in mind that you were just dying to talk about? Yes, I've been pushing it since the first day we started this show. Well, how come I don't know what you're talking about then? All the pretty horses. Well, I yeah, we're. I'm still. I'm. I'm working on whether or not we can do that. I'll just put it that way. The sun I, also that, rises. As, as you, oh, the sun also rises is one that I want to do too. That, as you know, all the pretty horses is one of my four Mount Rushmore books. It's maybe my favorite American novel other than Jaber Crow. So I want to do it badly, but there's some things I'm working through and you and I, we can discuss that. Sure. You know, when the children aren't listening. 
Uh, um, till we have faces or one of the space trilogy, the opening of the space trilogy. Did you say till we have faces just? To I did. You? I did to trigger you a little bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I um, should be C.S. Lewis selection. So there. How come? This is a, this is a little in-house discussion we have at the Cersei office that I can only do on close reads books that I have a particular association with and not a different kind of i'm not getting into this i vote no on the c.s lewis books continue an ibsen play i mean i okay. love c.s lewis so, it's not a criticism i love him too much to do this show on him okay so the ibsen play is a good idea i um we need to talk about drama because i wanted to do my thought was if we do another drama end of summer early fall that's a good distance from 12th night and uh for people who are not like lovers of drama and um, we either have to decide, do we want to do Shakespeare again, someone like Ibsen, or maybe do something like Antigone? Um, so I definitely want to do a play in the Man, near future. Antigone so we'll talk would about be that. so great. Antigone would be great. And um, so what was the other one? Um, the Sun Also Rises? Mm-hmm. I agree we should or, do that. And we could do um, a movable feast also. We could also do that. We didn't choose we the, get- right, the right... We get a lot of questions about The Sun Also Rises, so I think that's probably one worth doing. Yeah. Um, and then the other one people really want to do that I think we need to do in 2018 is Hannah Coulter, the, the yes. Wendell Berry book. That's, I'd love to do that. Here's my proposal then. What if we do uh, The Code of the Woosters next, just because people have been asking for something light. Then as we move into the summertime, the end of spring and summer, we do Hannah Coulter, and we can make that culminate with a live episode at the conference. And then after that, as we move into the end of summer and into fall, we do a drama of some kind. And then we look into trying to do All the Pretty Horses or The Sun Also Rises right after that. How, what would a, one of those two books right after that? Would that pattern, that pattern suit you three, you two? Sounds good to me. Angelina? Sounds great to me. Oh, I'm fine. These are not hills for me to die on. Okay. So listeners, we'll do this. After True Grit, we'll do The Code of the Woosters, the P.G. Woodhouse novel. I consider it his his greatest, his most complex and most interesting novel. Um, followed by Hannah Coulter, leading up to a live episode at the Summer Conference in Charleston. Followed by a drama of some kind, followed by either The Sun Also Rises or All the Pretty Horses. Um, and we'll work on um, which one that's going to be. I've got, we've got to talk through some things. Um, can I just throw a crazy little idea out? Antigone, a strong female character, if ever there was in literature. Um, it would be really interesting to compare her to a strong female character of another sort, like Hedda Gabler, the Ibsen play. I just think the Hedda, Hedda Gabler is one of these stories, or maybe even um, A Doll's House, there are these stories that what they meant in the 19th century when they first came out and like what, how they're read today, they're, the difference between those two readings is just so interesting and enjoyable and could be really, could be really enjoyable for our audience, for our community. <laughs> I am um, certainly <coughs> dying over here. Apparently I am. <coughs> um, Certainly interested in discussing, uh, you know, discussing that. So I, I'm not super familiar with Ibsen, so I'm certainly interested in just learning more about that canon of literature. Um, so with Maddie Ross, Hannah Coulter, possibly Ibsen's character, and um, 
this might be the uh and then possibly antigone or something this could be the strong with the summer of the the strong female lead yeah yeah right speaking of which let's talk a little bit about the about round one of the bracket and these round two matchups which are going to happen so well, as we go through feel free to um to vent to sigh to to <laughs> cry to do what you must to get through the next few minutes um in region one we are going to have Miss Elizabeth Bennett and Catherine Kate from the Taming of the Shrew. Uh, that means that Elizabeth Bennett beat Becky Sharp and Kate beat Imogen. What do you guys think of this Elizabeth Bennett versus Kate matchup? Angelina, where do you fall on that one? That's tough. I feel like in the vote, anybody who goes up against uh, Lizzie Bennett is going to get shredded. Would you? Is that who you would vote for, though? I'm not sure how I'm going to vote with that matchup. <clears throat> Although, I mean, Elizabeth Bennett's one of my all-time favorite women in a book. So Kate is also one of my all-time favorite women in a book. <laughs> so so this, that, 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 that's a tough one. That's a mm-hmm. tough one. I'm not sure how I'll vote. I've been feeling kind of persnickety, so I've kind of been going for the underdogs, and I've been getting a lot of heat for that on the Facebook page. But, you know, somebody's got to go for the – I can't just let Elizabeth Bennett come here with a slam dunk. Yeah, things. I, if there's one thing we know about Elizabeth Bennett is that everything just comes easy for her. Uh, <laughs> true, true that. Tim, Kate versus Elizabeth Bennett. Are we calling her Lizzie? I don't oh, know. What are we supposed to? No, she's Elizabeth. I was just being casual, <laughs> familiar. Yeah, I think Elizabeth's going to pass through fairly easily. Is that who you would vote for? That's who I'd vote for. Yeah. Okay. In the bottom part of that region, then we have. Lucy Pevensey and Joe March. Tim, I'll flip to you first. Oh man. Oh man. That's a tough matchup. I think Lucy's going to win. I would vote for her and I think she's going to win. Angelina. Yeah. Same. Do you have any comments on Joe March handily beating Sonia from common punishment? I think we expected that. I think we've always yeah. expected that the ones, the, the heroines who have been more well-read are going yeah. to, to be the one that people vote for. I mean, I've read Crime and Punishment. I didn't even remember there was a woman in the book. <laughs> you know, I have to say, I love that book. I, it's, it's, Sonia strikes me as, gosh, I don't know how to say it. I don't. Th- I think she's a very good character, but she's not one of the rich characters in literary history. Anna Karenina, different story. Speaking Sonia, of which, let's talk about uh, Anna Karenina's demise. You want to know why it's snowing in the South in March? Because of this unnatural act that occurred with this vote. All of nature is topsy-turvy, just like a Shakespeare play. Anna Karenina, it appears. Gods, people. You've angered the gods. Charlotte from Charlotte's Web has toppled Anna Karenina in the matchup, the literary upset of the you know, I was thinking about this earlier today. First, she's got to ha- suffer the indignity of losing to Anne of Green Gables. Now it's to a s- spider. Okay, so I propose the next bracket is women of Russian literature whose name starts with an A and also the book is named for her. <laughs> could, could she win that bracket? It depends on, I, I guess it depends on if there's I also a Russian child's literature that. <laughs> they would find a way. There's, there's like some other, like some Russian children's book about 
<laughs> character named like also Anne, probably. <clears throat> um, what, Tim, what do you think of that? The Anna Karenina falling to Charlotte. What do you What do you make of that? I mean, okay, as much I as you can say between the tears, of course. Charlotte is a very admirable character. Anna Karenina is a very um, mixed up character. I mean, not not mixed up. Yeah, I mean, I guess mixed up. She, it's hard. I think the, the question facing people when they vote in the bracket is, am I voting for the character that I, I admire or I, am I voting for the character that's well-drawn? And I think Anna Karenina, if, if the question is the latter question, I'm voting for the, for the heroine who is well-drawn, Anna Karenina, for me, has to win the bracket. Although she to has fair, to win the bracket. Charlotte's Web, it, she's literally drawn because it's a picture book. <laughs> well, a children's if, book yeah, if I'm going to vote about which one I would rather have um, as a friend, as a family member, putting aside in your living room, right. hanging from the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, you're not helping the a, case here at all. But, uh. but no, no, no. It's a question of like, if, if you're voting on who you admire, then Charlotte wins. If you're voting on which character is well-drawn, Anna wins. Anna wins. Anna is like one of the titanic heroine roles of all time. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree I with agree Tim. With I mean, if, if our listeners have not been on the Close Reads Facebook page, we had a very lively discussion about this because one of the hangups was the way that people were defining heroin. They were not defining it as the literary term that it is. And so they were thinking in terms that heroin had to mean virtue. And so a lot of people were hung up on the idea that you could vote for Anna Karenina because they felt like it was a vote for the virtue of adultery, which, you know, right. gosh, strike, strike me with lightning right now for even have said that. Um, but from a literary perspective, uh, the terms heroine and hero just mean the main character. It has mm-hmm. zero connotation of virtue. The, the yeah, reason that we're confused terms. about this, yes, the reason we're confused about this is because originally the term hero was to describe the epic hero. So the main character of an epic, by definition, had certain heroic virtues. That's the whole point of the epic. But once you move away, and the medieval romance, that's also true of the, of the romantic hero as well. But once you move to the novel, okay, the, the main character no longer has any assumption of, of that there's a certain set of cultural virtues that are being passed to us, like with Odysseus or Achilles or Aeneas, right? Like that's very deliberate. We're passing on what it means to be Greek to people that that's not what the novelist is trying to do. And so the terms hero and heroine have sort of just, you know, they have this hangover and and there's still in people's mind, this connotation of virtue. But when you're talking about literary heroes and heroines, you're not talking about it like, Oh, that boy just pushed an old lady out of the way of the bus. What a hero. And like, that's, that's not what we're talking about. So yes, I think people were very conflicted in their souls about some of the character offerings. Um, I mean, because I mean, look, Becky Sharp, right? Like we really want, want to pat her on the back for, for the stuff she did. I mean, that's not the, the point. It's, it's not a, it's not a, a thumbs up for whatever you might think their moral failings are. That's not the way that you use those terms from a, a literary perspective. Right. Now, we also said people can vote, vote however they want, so more power to you to make bad decisions. Yes, but um, a few people changed their vote away from Charlotte and toward Anna after I <laughs> made my impassioned plea for the proper understanding of heroin. You know, part of it, part of this can be remedied. Part of this can be remedied by not choosing if the bracket was constructed. Well, no, no, no. I was going to say not pitting 
a morally complex character pitting that character like Anna against a morally pure character like Charlotte. Yeah. So one of the things we were trying to do is not rig the, the seating too much. So what we did, like we weren't trying to put, we wanted it to be somewhat random. So we made, we took all of the 32 books characters and divided them into seeds so four one seeds, four two seeds, and so on through the eight through the eighth seed. So then we randomized them with the within those four seeds. So the one seeds were Penelope, Anna Karenina, Jane Eyre, and Elizabeth Bennet. And then the eight seeds were Margaret Schlegel, Charlotte. Who the thing Becky Sharp and Cleopatra. So the thing is that the idea of even including uh, Charlotte in this was like brought people in this office. I'm, I'm to fisticuffs. I'm not going to say not literally or not literally. I'm not going to not say that either though. So I, I don't necessarily want to tell you that we fight over these things literally in the office, but I'm not going to say we oh, don't Oh, he's either. been all over social media saying it. I don't know what <laughs> reputation he's trying to protect. <laughs> Matt and Graham were like, I th- I'm pretty sure they're not talking to each other to this day. Like I still, th- I think they're not talking to each other still. Um, but we I'm, should probably- I didn't threaten on social media to slaughter pigs if Charlotte won. I did, okay? I'm not ashamed. Bacon. So there, I'm eating bacon right now. <laughs> oh, I really wish that you'd been doing that. Um, okay, so let's move on. Ann Elliott, uh, Eleanor Dashwood beat Ann Elliott, so it's going to be Charlotte versus Eleanor Dashwood. Where would you go with that one? Let's just move on. We know the answer to that. Um, I assume neither of you. I assume that in your vengeance, you're going to be just right. voting Charlotte. Oh, out. yeah. She's yes. going right. to get squished like the bug she is. Scout. <laughs> <laughs> Scout. <laughs> versus Antigone. Scout versus Antigone. Oh, Scout beat oh, Nadia yes. Ross. Antigone had the closest oh. matchup. Oh, y'all. That's. Oh, hard. my gosh. This is brutal, Scout brutal, is so brutal. awesome, but so yeah. is Antigone. Oh, man. For me, Antigone is like archetypal character for all time and you could say that scout is also man antigone i i would if you do your final four bracket where you kind of like just choose your final four begin before you begin looking at individual matchups i pre-chose antigone but now in this one i'm really divided because i love antigone but oh i love scout too angelina that's a tough one i think scout will win yeah, I think she will too. But I don't know how I'm going to vote. I'm going to have to really think through my criteria there because I also really like Antigone. Hmm. Well, inner turmoil is exactly what I'm going for here. Okay, um, <laughs> Jane Eyre versus uh, Emma Woodhouse beat Portia. So Emma Woodhouse versus Jane Eyre. Oh, I'll have to go with, with Jane Eyre. I don't have a super high opinion of Emma. Tim? I don't have a high opinion of Emma either. I go with Jane Eyre. All right, Jesse Brown, did you hear that? <laughs> Grab the smelling salts. I voted for Jane Eyre. They <laughs> came after me with pitchforks for my Cleopatra vote. She got she got shot out on the air and got what she wanted. How about that? Uh, Be- okay, Beatrice versus Beatrice. Which you gonna which Beatrice are you gonna vote for here? I predict Beatrice will win and Beatrice will lose. Bold. <laughs> Risky take. I'm the risk. What a, I'm the a risk take. <laughs> um, what are the odds? 50 I, 50. I promise one day we're going to talk about true grit on this episode. Maybe. Uh, I hope so because I'm in love over here. Um, 
what was so okay tim if you're you have to choose which beatrice I choose Shakespeare's Beatrice. Yes, same. Dante's Dante's Beatrice. We've talked about it on the air. Mm-hmm. I am no fan of Dante's Beatrice. Witty banter for the win. Okay, Penelope Absolutely. versus Anne Shirley. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Okay, look, I'm not even joking here. For the love of God, if this if this doesn't go down as it should, right? Yeah, I will burn down the internet. Okay. <laughs> Got to be Penelope here. Penelope, it's People. not even close. Come on. People, are we threatening? Are, I'm not saying we are, but are we threatening to shut down the show for two weeks? That is that what we decided? We're going to go on a show in vacation. protest. <laughs> in protest for the loss of Penelope. I'm going to need a, a statement soul. issued that please respect my privacy during this difficult time. I'm going to have to go to rehab. <laughs> All right, final bad, matchup. Y'all. Hermione Granger beat the wife of Bath. Uh, so Hermione Granger versus Fanny Price, which beat Hannah Coulter. And is why we're doing Hannah Coulter on the show. Um, so Hermione Granger, Fanny Price. I love Fanny Price. Love Fanny Price. I also, also love Fanny Price. She's my second favorite of the Austin heroines, but I'm feeling kind of like I want to start some trouble and vote for Hermione. I don't know. Ooh. I just, okay, you know, again, I took some heat for not voting for Jane Eyre last time, but it's because I just felt like the 19th century heroine was overrepresented in the bracket. And so just felt like I needed to get behind some non-Victorian ladies. Burn those corsets, gals. Let's get busy. I think as much as anything, (laughs) that just goes to show when most of the great female leading ladies were created. Because... This was not the easiest list to come no, up with, I gotta not. say. No, it's not. All right. Speaking of one particular leading lady that is uh, worthy of acclaim, let's talk about True Grit. Before we get into the book proper, I want to know from each of you a little bit about your your experiences with Westerns in general. So... Angelina, this is the first Western you've ever read. I believe you're 67 pages into yes. your first Western and it's your new favorite genre. Um, yes. But did you, yes, watch Cow- did you watch cowboy movies growing up, cowboy TV shows, anything like that? Okay, so my dad was a big fan of the Westerns. So he was always reading the Zane Gray and the Louis L'Amour and all of that, um, which I always thought was kind of slumming it for him. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, feeling, I'm feeling humble about that right now. Uh, and then we always watched a lot of Western movies. You remember growing up, those... Uh, TBS Saturday movie marathons. I know you do, Tim. You're from Atlanta. Oh, yeah. Ted Turner. I was good for something. And so I I have watched a lot of classic movies in my life just because of Ted Turner, right? So I just feel like if we weren't watching Atlanta Braves baseball, we were watching Westerns in my house. And I don't know growing up if I ever watched a Western from beginning to end, but I feel like like I've seen uh, most of Westerns out of order. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> over over a decade or so. Um, and then when I got to college, I took some film classes and uh, one of the classes we took included the Western. And so I saw um, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and Shane and then Unforgiven. So I did see those and liked them, um, but not enough to like make me want to read a Western. I, I've never been particularly enchanted with the whole cowboy motif. Like a lot of women think that's a very kind of romantic man and ideal. And I've never been into the boots and cowboy hat thing that's just you that's wanted just not been my thing. robes and tights pretty much i mean you know mr dorsey <laughs> would he wear a cowboy hat i don't think so uh also i don't can't imagine him being that dirty but anyway <laughs> <laughs> 
good point. It's an excellent point. Refined, like refined men, you know, the refined mm -hmm. cowboy. I just don't know that I, Brandon somewhere is having a heart attack. We have argued about this. He does not. He does not uh, agree with my uh, my my not enjoyment of the cowboy aesthetic. Men. No, well, that is well established. <laughs> but he also told me not to be judgy about men who wear cowboy boots and cowboy hats because I was being very judgy about that. Of course, yeah, he's from he's Texas. Yeah, he's from Texas. So big issue with that. But then I said, "You're in Austin. Nobody in Austin's wearing cowboy hats and boots. They're hipsters over there." So I don't even I don't even know what what anyway. I, Although weirdly, I in other cities, the hipsters wear cowboy hats and boots. So. That's right, but see, they're going the anti-Texas aesthetic there, so you know, <laughs> got you gotta, it, got they have, they're being ironic in Texas. Anyway, so, so now our listeners know: if you go to Austin, do not expect to see cowboy boots and cowboy hats. Uh, go to Houston if you want that, <laughs> and that is some truth right there. Um, so anyway, uh, I've been I've been researching a bunch of King Arthur legend stuff in the search for the Holy Grail, and just kind of following some footnotes. Uh, in that area. And I was reminded that my dad, when he was a young boy, really just was in love with the King Arthur myths and Camelot and, and read all of those legends a lot. And then at some point that translated into his love of Westerns. And so I was thinking about that and thinking about all the research I was doing and started to formulate a little theory that the American Western is really just America's version of the King Arthur legends. And, uh, and now that I'm actually reading a Western, boy, it is so true. And I'm so excited. And I'm seeing all of the elements of a medieval romance here. And I'm super excited. Hmm. I have taken so many notes. It's not even funny. Like, I, I'm ready to give a conference talk on this. I'm ready to teach a class on the Western. Like, I am so pumped about Westerns right now. You, you, I'm going to send you a list of them because before you do a class, you may want to read more than 67 pages of one of them. But, you know, just saying. <laughs> I will gladly take your list i would gladly <laughs> take your list um tim you and i both have it's been well established on this episode already that you and i both love a western novel uh all yeah. pretty horses are you um a west lover of westerns kind of across the board or is it just that particular novel that you are have that much affection for i i think it's more that particular novel although i also love Lonesome Dove. Have you read Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry? Man, if we could do that book on this show, I why would can't that we? Man, because somebody else has been recommending that to me too. Well, is it too long? Well, it's long, but it's a fast read. But it's because, in true Western, is there some grittiness fashion, there? There's um, one of the main characters is a prostitute, and that yeah, some, you know, there's some scenes in it that are yeah you kind of have to skip over and I don't really, you know, there's kids that listen, there's kids that read, I, you know, I, I want to be sensitive to, to that sort of stuff. So yeah. basically it's a book about these guys are trying to rescue a, a, a prostitute. That's one of the big yeah. That's a parts lot of, of it, themes so. in Westerns. I'm thinking of the movies that I've seen. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just bits and pieces of various Clint Eastwood movies. There's almost always the rescue, which again, that's your damsel in distress that the oh, knight yeah. has to go rescue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So okay, Tim. Did, what was what were westerns like for you growing up? Were you like Angelina? Did, were you? Did you guys watch? I them was kind of like house? Angelina. I, I was not particularly interested. They would show up on TBS, and I would change the channel. Yeah, I just wasn't interested. Um, and I still, as a, like as a movie genre, I'm still not crazy about it. There are exceptions. The Good and the Bad, the Ugly is so terrific, just through the roof. I love every scene in that movie. I think I've seen that one too. Oh, it's so good. Um, and there are a couple of other Westerns that I like as movies, but for the most part, it's just not a genre that I'm really attracted to. I'm just really picky. Hmm. So then were you, 
what what were your um hopes and dreams for this book coming into it for either of you i mean were you like oh david's just forcing me to read a western book here no no i because that's how you talk when you're seen, angry <laughs> i'd seen the coen brothers movie twice i really liked it and once i saw the back cover of true grit i was like oh this is gonna be great i just didn't know other than the movie movies i didn't know much about true grit I have not seen the movies just for the record. So keep the spoilers under your hat. Yeah. Like I don't have any idea what's going to happen. And I do want to do a bonus episode on the Coen brothers movie, the more recent one, because it's far oh, superior yeah. than the, the earlier one, but it's also um, extremely true to the book. So I think it, we'll, we'll need to do one on that. It's one of, I mean, I could watch that movie. I don't know about weekly, but monthly for sure. It's so good. Wow. So then let's talk. Let's talk this book in particular. So you didn't grow up reading Western books. You didn't grow up like loving Western characters. So given that, given what, you know, maybe your expectations were throughout your life up to this point about kind of what's, what's in a Western story, are there any things in True Grit that surprised you or that, or that you didn't, that you kind of didn't really expect to, to, I don't know, like see in, in what is considered one of the classic Western novels? Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is that it's very typical of the Western genre to have the hero initiate motif, right? So um, like in Shane, you got the little boy and the older cowboy. And so you're dealing with all the themes. You're dealing with all these intense um, points of conflict, right? Between barbarism and civilization, if you want to use the medieval terms. Um, but, um, you know, the savages versus civilization is probably how you'd say it for a Western savagery. Cause it's not, it's not just Indians, it's outlaws who are in the Indian territory. So, I mean, it's definitely fitting that idea that somehow that's outside of civilization and outside of the reach of the law. But in this case, it's, Oh, and so in the initiate hero um, kind of narrative construct, you're seeing the cowboy world through the eyes of a child. So we have that setup, but it's a girl here, mm -hmm. which are there a lot of, are there are a lot of girl narrators of westerns. Is this surely different? not? David, yeah, this no. struck me. It's really cool. Off the top of my head, I can't think of of any. Um, the, the more often, what happens in the, as an archetype in western movies and in books is the the female character who is sort of haunting or hovering over the story, um, either because of you know the quest to either rescue her or to um, win her over, um, you know, the rest, you know, if you, if you're familiar with Western movies, you'll have the, the searchers, for example, where John Wayne's character is on a seven year hunt um, to rescue his niece who had been captured. And um, so she's barely in the movie until the very end. And, but she, but her, she kind of haunts and hovers over the movie or another John Wayne movie, the sons of Katie elder where the, there's mm -hmm. this mother character and he, she has four sons and she kind of, she dies and then kind of hovers over the story. Um, but you, Gosh, that is so, that's so medieval. The two poles of women who hover, hover over the story, man, but usually it's, you know, um, it's Westerns rarely there's, to me, in, from my perspective, there's two sort of general categories of Westerns. There's the Westerns that are about going somewhere and doing something. 
um, such as this book. It's the quest motif, as you've mentioned online, Angelina. Um, but then there's also the ones where you are staying in a place and protecting it. Um, yes. You know, the, the real Bravo is the classic movie example of that. Um, um, so you basically got one of those two things going on. And in the course of that, it, you know, these female archetypes play into it somehow, um, either by hovering over it and haunting it or by needing to be protected or rescued in some way or another. So this does kind of turn that upside down. Um, and, and in this book, of course, well, we can talk about it later. Tim, was there anything that surprised you? I, I, I don't know about surprised because I had seen the Coen brothers film. Yeah. That's a good um, point. But the, the, Maddie's diction and adult approach to life was it's riveting. It's funny. I was thinking about how the narrator in Howard's Inn and the narrator in true grit are almost the complete opposites. The book, the books are intended to be different things and thus the narrators are so different. This narrator has a single viewpoint. It's first person it's very limited and some of the humor that shows up in the book is because of the um the very fixed and limited viewpoint of this very precocious character you know like she sees things that most kids her age just don't see she handles things that most kids couldn't handle but there's certain things that she can't see um and that leads an adult reader to really kind of like appreciate the slyness of the narrator behind the viewpoint. Right. Like <clears throat> she's so deadpan and that she just kind of presents things uh -huh. without commentary. It's literally the exact opposite of our narrators in the last yes. time we read, but there's because she does that and she's lacks some self-awareness. And so as the reader, that self-aware that that sense of or that lack of self-awareness is where some of the humor comes in um yeah in, right through the deadpan presentation and that, i think too, that's a really like uniquely the, american oh, sorry, thing. But, no no no. that's i would just say that's a very american it's a, it's a you know follows in line with mark twain it does and i also think too that that is a particular trait of the western hero right this is a man of action not words so mm. you're not going to see a lot of pontificating and philosophizing in fact if characters like that do show up in a western they're mocked right they're effeminate they're weak they're the ones that have to be protected yeah well and um i might add until oh and almost always they wear glasses i just thought about the guy in here with the glasses until that's, never a good that's a good point yeah True. Until, until, well, the sign of weakness, I guess, now that I think about it. Um, until World War One, the heroes themselves were, it wasn't even about the Westerns. It was like all American literature had heroes of this sort. Like Huckleberry Finn is not really, or characters of this sort. Huckleberry Finn is sort of not a Western story, but it's still about the vast expanses like the wilderness. Um, Oh, Finnamore Cooper, you can definitely see that. Yeah, yeah and, and it goes, so it goes back to the earliest, you know, even, you even see it in like Herman Melville, even to a, Moby Dick's a different sort of wilderness. But in American literature, the primary motif in American literature until, you know, after World War I, really, was, it, well, until really the dawn of in, maybe the big cities and industrialization and everything, was cultivate, cr trying to create civilization out of the mm -hmm. wilderness. 
Like that's mm. the American, that's the American theme in literature. That's why, for example, the quintessential American motif in all of American literature is the forest, is the journey through the forest. Mm. And in the Western, that gets expanded as, you know, in the early American times, it was a regional thing, right? You had, you know, Fenimore Cooper, Hawthorne, Melville, you know, it was either the ocean or the forest because of where they lived. And as the, as we expanded West and you had these great open places, these great open expanses, these deserts, the plains, all those sorts of things, that motif was carried over to the, to a wilderness that it, where there's no shelter. It's not that there's something hiding around the corner. It's that you're always exposed. So that, that American motif kind of moved across the country until I guess you got to the ocean and all the cities were created. And then that's when the American literature turns to the crime novel because the cities became, because we had, we had traipsed across all the wilderness we could. I didn't know that. And so well, that great, makes total sense. You can see that the gangster genre comes right out of the outlaw genre with the Western, especially because the Western genre of, well, if you can say it's dead, the Western film genre went, you know, died, quote unquote. It's always um, having a comeback, but yeah. It is, but like when you trace the evolution of the genre, it gets, you know, they move away from the cowboy can, uh, can, okay, so he can fight to protect the city against the outlaws. And then eventually the city also becomes a threat to the cowboy. And so he has to work outside of the system. And so you get the, the mercenary. Uh, cowboy like mm -hmm. you have in this book right i'm going to go out there and, and it's very clearly established that he his time is passing i don't know if you i marked all of those passages the the judge's t day is passing the supreme court is ruling against him uh the rooster rooster talks about how oh, they they want me to be nice to the rats and you can just like there's a shift as more and more civilized expectations are coming on them mm -hmm. that are yep. disproportionate with the reality that those guys are getting pushed out. You can see how that totally then I'm going to jump to one of my favorite things, the film noir, right? Yep. How the hero of the film noir also cannot work within the system. The, the system itself is, is part of the problem. So the film noir detective has, he's, he's fighting the gangster and he's fighting the police. The, and and I, I Go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just saying there's a direct line from the American, from the U.S. Marshal type character who is yes. sort of a rogue policeman. You know, this, you know, the Lone Ranger, for example, is a classic example. Um, there's a direct line from them to the, the film noir detective or the private eye or, you know, the Sam Spade type characters. And as the city Absolutely. expanded and became the, the, the place that represented American culture and American life, you, he became the cowboy or became to American culture and art what the cowboy was previously. And that's the yeah. early American cowboy literature came from pulp, like dime novels and early American uh, crime novels came from the pulp fiction and and they kind of did the same thing and then you get and then that leads into comic books and things like that um so there's this direct line that can be traced through all that and i think you can trace that line before western literature back to the late 1700s early 1800s um even through i would argue transcendentalism and puritanism back through you know back to england that's a whole other another whole Gosh, that's so fascinating. Yeah, I marked all the spots that were setting up Marshall versus outlaw, but then you also, so even, okay. So to trace your, so if the Marshall is like the film noir detective and the outlaw is like the gangster, then the sheriff is like the corrupt, inept, inefficient, a useless police institution because I marked all the passages where Maddie tries to get help through the law, through the sheriff, through the proper means. Right. 
and she's very clearly can't. So um, he's pushing us toward this uh, justification yeah. that this vengeance is her only, this is the only path. She tries to have justice and we're shown point by point how she's not going to get it. She's not going to get it. Yeah, I think that's why we also, you know, that courtroom scene, that lengthy courtroom scene in right. part three there, that works to introduce our producer. Like it, it, it goes a lot in, in helping us get to know him, but it's also pitting him against the law, essentially against the courtroom. So there's this sense of conflict yes. or unease, at, at the very least unease between Rooster, who is our kind of representation of justice and the legal system against the courtroom. So it, it creates that conflict, even as it's getting to know, helping us get to know our character. Um, and then also it's happening. It's we're also getting to know Maddie at the same time because it's her transcription of it, right? It's her, the way she saw it. Um, so it helps mm-hmm. us get to know her a little bit there. Tim, when you first met Maddie uh, Ross, I just realized that um, in Jaber Crow, there's a Maddie as well. Huh. Because um, I, I almost called her Maddie Chatham. In, it, when you met Maddie Ross, what was your first impression? Uh, how precocious she is and how, how um, succinct her and kind of and King Jamesy her, her language is. Um, it's, it, this book strikes me through her narration is very much kind of clothed in the good book, the West, you know, the people mm. probably in Maddie's time, if they're going to own a book, they own one, the Bible. That's probably the only mm. book that they own. Maybe they own, uh, it's probably past the time they would own Fox's book of martyrs, like, you know, the early East coast colonists would, but yeah, her, her, she's, uh, kind of theologically imbued with this very, um, clear Protestant point of view. She thinks, talks, acts in King James English. She's got a lawyer's mind. She's very, <laughs> I don't know if litigious is the right word, but uh, she's remarkable. She's just remarkable. I just kept wanting her to take, when she, when she takes on the, who's the guy who's holding her father's stuff? What is right. his, I don't know Stone what his occupation is. Stonehill, something yeah. like that. When she takes him on, you're just like, Bro, you are in over your head. You cannot <laughs> handle this. See, that was so interesting. That okay. So the scene with with her her saying, "I'm going to bring in the lawyer." What's so interesting is that she clearly hasn't because we see her being taken advantage of twice. She's taken advantage of, and she knows it both times. And mm-hmm. she makes the choice not to make this a fight. So she's not somebody who's just a hothead looking for a fight, right? She's got some discernment about what hills you die on. So yeah. she lets it go. The third time, though, she will not be taken advantage of. We can see that, okay, she she wasn't snookered earlier. She knew exactly what she was doing. Mm. She just didn't want those fights. But she has a a strong sense of her. I don't, oh gosh, I don't even know how to, how to say it, right? But, but she's, a, she's, a, she's a child. She's a girl child in the West, right? She has zero power, zero anything, right? All she is is somebody who can be taken advantage of. So I loved in that scene how she knew how to use the force of the law behind her, which I assume is what's the same thing, why she's going to hook up with Rooster, right? Because she can't do it on her. She's got to have this force. Somebody's got to have her back who has more force and more authority than she does. And so she's able to use this 
use the lawyer and use the law. I love that. I love that you kind of are at least alluding to sort of her powerlessness as this girl child in the West, because mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that like her admission of, of her powerlessness and then her, and then finding ways to kind of work around that is one of the things that makes her so unique because um, most of the time, if you, whether it's a Western or a film or a noir story or, or, or some crime story, when you have this sort of um, this female character who is at a disadvantage in some way, it's almost always some femme fatale type character who tries to use her looks or whatever to try to right. manipulate yeah. situations. But here, you know, that's not an advantage Maddie has. That's not, you know, that's not, doesn't play into the situation. This is just a, a young woman who is precocious and courageous and really smart. And she just owns the situation that she's in. She doesn't have to try to manipulate anyone by being, you know, like flirty or, or something that you'd, or, or, um, trying to manipulate someone into falling in love with her or something like that, that you're going to see in a, in a lot well, of other she's stories. not doing the child version of that either. She's not playing helpless and crying and help me get, find yeah. my daddy's killer. She's True. not doing anything. She's so straightforward. She says she's basically taking it upon herself and she's saying, I'm going to do this. I need you to help me. She's aware of her right, limitations, but, we, but not, not trusting people to just do things for her. And we see that from the very beginning when she gets on the train with um, Yarnell. And Yarnell is being mistreated by the yeah. conductor ticket taker. And she calls him out for that. Like, so she's clearly, she, she has a strong sense of justice and what's right and the way she, people should be treated. And, and then she encounters a world in Fort Smith, which is constantly being contrasted to Little Rock. So Fort Smith doesn't have the civilization and the law and the economy, like all the places that she's pointing out that Fort Collins is backwards. This yeah, is the, not the further civilization. further west you go. Right, right. So she's not going to have uh, fair uh, trade dealings. You're going to get cheated. You're not going to have the law here. You're not going to have any. And so she just keeps saying, well, Little Rock, this is what we do in Little Rock. Well, I see I got a good deal in Little Rock. You know? Stonehill even has a, a sense of despair about it, right? Like, he's like, if I, I should have just stayed in Pittsburgh. I knew I should have stayed in Pittsburgh. Yeah. If I could, yeah. I would go yes. back right now and I'd be treated fairly there. And none of this would happen. I wouldn't be having a girl, you know, cheating me. <laughs> because Or not cheating, but he feels like he's, you know, doesn't... He gets backed into a corner, I suppose, is the best way of saying it. Hey, I got a question. Do you guys think that Maddie knows why, like, in her cerebral cortex, in the front of her mind, knows why she chooses Rooster Cogburn? Or do you think it's more of just sort of like a, a gut intuition? Well, I read it when, when she's listening to the descriptions. He was the only man who was described as guaranteed to get the job done. But do you think that once she saw him on the stand that she kind of recognized, I need a man who's willing to act beyond the law, not well, in violation of it. Let's I, read. Thought she, I thought she made that decision earlier, and that's why she went to, to search him out. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a great moment there that last night, I, I've read this book several times, um, and I love the moment when she, shoot, where is that? It's in part three, I believe. Okay, all right, here it is, 25. Um, yeah. Okay, so um, let's see. Angelina, why don't you read... Um, why don't you be, why don't, I'll just be the narrator, you be Maddie, and then um, you be the sheriff, Tim. And okay, let's, sure. let's start with um, the sheriff said, do you see that? 
On 24? 25. Yeah, that's kind of a... Oh, yeah. that too. Yeah, the sheriff said, I have no authority. That was said a few times. I know, as soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, that is terrible direction. Um, Most nondescript marker ever. (laughs) It's like, you see that place where it says the boy? Could you just go there? (laughs) Um, Okay. So, Tim, go ahead. Just the sheriff said, and then it's, I have no authority. I have no authority in the Indian nation. He is now the business of the U.S. Marshals. When will they arrest him? It's hard to say. They will have to catch him first. Do you know if they are even after him? Yes. I have asked for a fugitive warrant, and I expect there is a federal John Doe warrant on him now for the mail robbery. I will inform the marshals as to the correct name. I will inform them myself. Who is the best marshal they have? The sheriff thought on it for a minute. I would have to weigh that proposition. There is near about 200 of them. I reckon William Waters is the best tracker. He's a half-breed Comanche, and it's it is something to, and it is something to see watching him cut for sign. The meanest one is Rooster Cogburn. He is a pitiless man, double tough, and fear don't enter into his thinking. He loves to pull a cork. Now, LT Quinn, he brings his prisoners in alive. He may let one get by now and now and then, but he believes even the worst of men is entitled to a fair shake. Also, the court does not pay any fees for dead men. Quinn is a good peace officer and a lay preacher to boot. He will not plant evidence or abuse a prisoner. He is straight as a string. Yes, I will say Quinn is about the best they have. Where can I find this rooster? (laughs) You will probably find him at the federal court tomorrow. They will be trying the Wharton boy. I love this because it tells us everything we need to know about her, right? She says, uh-huh, who's the uh-huh. best marshal they have? He goes through three. He different- makes a recommendation. One's the best tracker. The only thing he says about Rooster is that he's the meanest one. He's pitiless, double tough, and fear don't enter into his thinking. And he loves mm-hmm. to pull a cork. And then he goes through, he like analyzes the other guys, talks about how one of them is, you know, likes to bring people in alive and he, you know, doesn't plant. He's not going to do anything to plant evidence or right. use any prisoners. He's straight as a string. And then she just says, where can I find this rooster? As soon as he makes his recommendation. Yeah. So she just completely goes against everything that he just recommended. <laughs> she knows and she we wants. see in the court transcript that um, we kind of catch rooster planting evidence. You know, like the man with his hand yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in the fire and rooster kind of claims that like, maybe the hogs dragged him there. <laughs> and the reader is like left thinking, no hogs dragged him there. You dragged him there. You were... You were burning his hand so as to extract answers. That's what everybody kind of walks away knowing. Angelina, is there? You've been talking about the medieval, the medieval um, sort of comparison, similarities to the medieval stories, the medieval quest stories. With this, Um, is there a similar sort of motif in medieval lit for a character like Rooster, where on the one hand you have these, you have the sort of um, the sort of sheriff who's driven by justice, you know, sort of the classic white hat. And then you might have the classic bad black hat, right? These, you know, the white hat, the, the Lone Ranger, the Roy Rogers type character, the black hat is the, the pure villain type thing. But what about a character like Rooster who's sort of in the middle, you know, is maybe he rides the black horse or wears the black hat if you're doing it visually in a movie or something it, where it, technically he's on the good side but there's this sort of gray area that is sort of consistent with the wilderness that they live in. Is that a uniquely, you think that is something that's unique to American literature and to this wild West, or is there something in medieval literature that is also consistent with that? 
there is something in medieval literature that's consistent like that. I hadn't thought about it like that until until you until you said it though. Um, because well, so one one of the things that's going on in say a King Arthur tale is that you had the same wilderness idea. So 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 the King Arthur legends sprout up right after Rome pulls out of England. So it's mass chaos, right? And no, you don't have Indians, but you have tribes, the Celts and the Picts and the Angles and the Saxons and all of these people coming in. Civilization has been destroyed. And so the King Arthur legends spring up as an attempt to bring a civilizing influence to things, the code of chivalry, honor. And so the knights are out there pushing back the barbarians and pushing back the wilderness and trying to have civilization and law and order. But they have, I don't even know how to say it. I don't want to say compromise because that has the wrong connotation, but just um, the knights are they, they, they swear to uphold a code of, code of chivalry, but they don't always, they're not perfect. They definitely, there's definitely some gray for these guys about what is the right thing to do in a lot of these situations. Um, like Lancelot? Yeah. Well, like Lancelot and I'm, I'm thinking of, a well, Sir Gowan, he's questionable. I mean, some of them are pure. Um, uh, what's Lancelot's son? I'm drawing a blank here. Lancelot's son, he's pure. He finds the Holy Grail. He's the only one who's pure, which, I mean, part of what that's saying is that this is a multi-generational project. <laughs> is it Percival? Um, is it Percival? Who? Gosh. One of our astute listeners will correct me on this. I'm completely drawing a blank on who Lancelot's son is. But um, anyway, uh, so, yeah, so you Wait, do see- Wait, Galahad? You, okay. Yes, Galahad. I was sitting here going, it's a G, it's a G, but it's not Gowan. Yes, Galahad, thank you. Google, I should have just, why don't I just Google these things? I'm so old school. I'm sitting here trying to remember and I've got a tablet, a phone and a computer in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm literally like, where's my book? Let me look it up in my book. Um, <laughs> but like with the Western, it's almost very difficult to, to even to locate the King Arthur tales, quote unquote, in a particular space in time because they they go over centuries and they change radically, just like you right. see with the, with the West. Um, and so you have like this all kind of idealism and, and nobility and virtue. And then after a while, you have people focusing on the tragic ends of it. It's failure, the death of Arthur, the failure of Camelot, um, the corruption, that the code fell apart. Uh, and so you have more things that are similar to this, the guy who maybe is a little bit in the gray, but who can get things done. Hmm. But in terms of the allegory, they, like, they do like their heroes to be um, pretty pure. Um, so it's similar, but I, I don't know off the top of my head if there is exactly this kind of almost what a no man's land character. Do, yeah. Do you think? Do you think that this in in having a character like Rooster as kind of a representative of um, the possibility of justice? Um, do you do you think that that makes the story? less of a less possible to to sort of imprint virtue on the reader like in other words is there something inherently problematic about this gray area some people would call it the anti-hero um, which i think may be a little bit too specific but um is there something inherently f um problematic about our sort of representative of justice and the one who's supposed to protect you know the the girl like being so problem is that is that going to be an issue for developing virtue or or could it for some parents if you're if you're trying to if you're trying to worry about 
think about what your kids should read or your students should read, for example. Do you see that being a problematic thing in that way? That was the worst mm. question I have ever asked on this show. <laughs> but by the end of it, no, a, and by the end of it, it I made a, a good worse. question. It's a great question. question. I'm thinking about what you're saying. My first gut response is that uh, unlike the film noir character, he is still the law, right? He's a U.S. marshal. He is still the law. And he did still bring prisoners in and he does still go to court and he does face accountability. Yes, things are changing. Yes, he doesn't really want to work within the constraints of the institution. Yes, he thinks the institution is flawed and out of touch, but he still is working in the institution. So I, I don't have a problem with him representing virtue at all. And also, I think the Western hero, that's a big deal is their code of honor. It's inside them. It's not outside of them. And I think we see the same thing with Maddie. Maddie has a very clear code of honor, which does not stop her yeah. from wanting to kill a man. But she definitely has a code of honor, and she sticks to it. Yeah, and it seems like there's a code of honor that is, um, you know, the same code of honor wouldn't necessarily work in, like, Jane Austen's, you know, countryside, English countryside. You know, yeah. like, Darcy's not going to have... Yeah the same the same code of honor is not going to work as it does in you know a wild west of the 1880s or whatever it is now that does seem american that that is not like a the king arthur thing was not an internal code of honor it was external you all swore to it it was the external code of honor that was supposed to change the man that almost seems to be flipped around for the western tim do you think that that is because of the uh relative I'll just say youth of America. In other words, that as American literature and culture was evolving, it really was growing. It was still only, when this story would have been taking place, still only a couple hundred years old, um, that it was happening in this sort of wilderness, that it was kind of carving itself out. Whereas, you know, in the medieval times, there's centuries of European culture that it was building on. Or is that too, too much of an oversimplification? Well, the thing that strikes me... I think the similarities between the knights after the fall of the Roman Empire and the cowboys in the American West, I think those guys are similar. And I would say that they're different from um, the code of the Englishman, let's say, in the 18th or 19th century. And I think, I, I think I'm probably sidestepping your question, David, but I think the reason that the the, the cowboys and the knights, and I would also maybe put the samurai in there also. They're all honor-bound, but they're all also having to go into this very... They have to make morally dubious decisions sometimes. And I think they have to make morally dubious decisions in a way that the Englishman doesn't because they're facing the threat of violence, whereas the Englishman is facing the threat of social ostracization and so <laughs> um moral excuse me rooster cogburn is going to have to do things in this book that the upright english gentleman will never have to do presumably because his life is at stake and other people's lives are at stake and so he's got to act really swiftly and he does not have the luxury of always having the law at his back. Agreed. And I would also say that Mr. Darcy can act the way he does because King Arthur and his men succeeded. They did civilize England. Mm -hmm. There is law and order. So Darcy doesn't have to act that way. Whereas the Cowboys did not succeed. Evidence, California. <laughs> well, it 
it's, you know, but when we joke about it, but there's so many fascinating articles about, and, and Tim, you live in that part of the world, but, but that there's a very different mindset, you know, than yeah. there is the rest of the country, just a rugged yeah. individualism that you could certainly understand. They've inherited this. This is in their DNA. Like, like I always tell my students, cause I read this fascinating article a few years back and it, and it was about, um, one of the reasons why Americans have the sort of personality they do, and it, and it looked at it in terms of DNA versus just cultural influences, it was fascinating because it said, we're descendants of people who literally looked around and was like, ah, I'm out of here. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? I can't work within the system, cannot be reformed, I'm out. Like, yeah. And I thought, that that really is so true. That That is that's in our blood, in our DNA. And, and of course, the people who stayed East, I guess, had less of it than those who went all the way West. I mean, I just think you had to be half insane to look at the Rocky Mountains and be like, yeah, pretty sure we can do this. There's a hospitable <laughs> landing spot. <laughs> There's also We'll just dump this piano on the side of the gourd and keep going, honey. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I just came up with, I mean, I feel like you just came up with a great idea for a short story that one of us needs to write. Um, <laughs> the... Uh, this, yeah, the sheer size, the expansiveness, you know, like this, there's this motif all the time of like the wide open spaces of, of the West, the big, it's big sky country, right? There's a, one of the great American Western novels yeah. called big sky. Um, and, and that, you know, just that the sheer expansiveness of it, like being a one small speck in this huge expansive area and having to like carve out your own, your life out of it, um, would be a, uh, like to succeed daunting. daunting yeah and and to be successful at that would demand a level of um hard-headedness right um the kind of thing yeah. you know you see even i i think one of the reasons that the little, little house in the prairie books are actually valuable is because you see what it took you know someone like charles ingles to to carve out a life for a family in a fairly wild place and it romanticizes it a little bit because it has to but it still still shows that and and there's a sort of like the the stories of the east even you know as we get into the cities and stuff it takes a different sort of hard-headedness right like there's a provincialism in them that is a different sort of there's a different sort of spirit a different sort of like psychological approach you have to have to to carve out a life in it um and that's where i you know i think that's where there's a big difference between what you end up getting in um, 20th century crime novel, crime novels compared to the Western novels. Um, anyway, that we could talk about that. No, I think you're so totally forever. right. And so that makes me think of how, I don't know that this is going to be a theme in this book, but like in Shane, the idea of the fences, that that becomes a huge conflict in Westerns, right? Oh, yeah. Well, and, and you, what's, the, what's the one thing that, you know, these guys you, in the ranch stories, what do they want? That, you know, you want to have, it, whether the outlaws attacking your city your, or your town or your village, or someone's trying to steal your cattle or take over your land or whatever, people want room to, to, to stretch their legs, right? To, to yes. where you can, you can stretch your legs and you can ride and it's, and it's your land and you can do whatever you want with it. And no one's going to tell you what you have to do with it or what you have to pay for it or what the government can do to it. Um, and of course, the tragic irony of, of that is that underneath the surface and sometimes on the surface in these stories is the conflict between the people who lived there all along and the people who are moving there. 
you know, the people who, yes. the Native Americans who had lived there and who had settled the land way before anyone else was there, at least settled it to the degree that they needed it to be settled, right? They, mm-hmm. And they knew how to live off of it and they knew how to, they had made a life for themselves there. Um, and so that sort of, the conflict between them, the Native Americans and the people who are moving them out is underneath the surface of all of these Western stories of people who are trying to find a place to stretch their own legs. And on the one hand, you know, there's, there's the hero who carves out a place, the Charles Ingalls, the, the rancher, the, you know, the rooster Cogburn. But, you know, there's, there's always the question of at what cost are we doing this? And you can't right. read a Western story, um, especially a story about justice or revenge without that being a part of your conversation or being in your yeah. mind. And early on in this novel, it's not there very, um, it's definitely under the surface but you hear these little references to like the Comanche tracker or, or the, whatever it was, you know, the, mm-hmm. um, there's the different references that are under the surface and it becomes a bigger deal later. Um, but, but that sort of is always bubbling under the surface. And if, if you, if you're not reading Westerns with that in your, in, in mind, then you're sort of, then you are romanticizing it, I think, or, you, or it becomes too easy to romanticize it and get out of your head. Like the real questions of what justice is and things like that. It becomes too easy to say, yes, this yeah. is just or unjust. It's so interesting that, you know, when we read uh, Murder on the Orient Express, we had a lot of these same themes. And what does justice look like when the institution fails you? Hmm. That's, yeah. yeah. Maddie Ross is doing the same thing that the, the guys on Murder on the Orient Express did. Hmm. And they were also American characters. And you know American what I want to know is, is this character is so prevalent in western literature and probably in east i would say eastern literature also i just don't feel confident because i'm just so less familiar but i are there is there a biblical a biblical character that's compatible i mean with, is with john the Kitchen? baptist with this kind of rogue character who has to sort of operate outside the bounds not against the law but outside the bounds of the law that's a good question. I mean, David to Other a certain than extent, Jesus? maybe. Jesus? I mean, he... I mean, you could say Jesus, but you, you've I also mean, got I, Jesus but saying... But I mean, I mean, operates outside the pharisaical laws. That's what yeah. I mean. It's, what's hard is that Moses? God's law is so clearly... Oh, Matt, Moses is like the provider of the law. Well, not when he's still in Egypt, I guess. That's true. And in that's true. I was just thinking like the whole moving across, you know, moving from one place to another through a wilderness and doing I mean, all he that. does lead him into the wilderness. The yeah. prophets, I guess, to a certain extent, there's going to be someone out oh, there. Oh, the who's prophets, like, yes. You're well, only see, talking about, about the obvious that. ones. But no, I don't know about, I don't know about the prophets. I and mean, the prophets are... Well, they're, they're loners. They often the have to, but they often have to stand up against the civil authorities, and their lives are threatened because of it. They're loners. I mean, Elijah is like living in the mountain, and yeah. crying and saying he wishes he was dead. And... It's interesting, though, that that Rooster Cogburn is going. To, he's a loner. He, I mean, he's like he fits the bill of the Old Testament prophet in some ways. But the Old Testament prophet is prosecuting the people on behalf of the law, the neglected law. They're not practicing the law. That's why the, the prophets come after them. Okay, so then you could... Go ahead, Angelina. Well, I'm just trying to like make the connection that 
then there is a sense in which the prophet is operating under his own code of honor, right? That Because a lot of times in the stories, the law has been lost, right? But he's saying, right. no, but I, I know, I remember, I know what the real deal is, and you guys are not doing the right thing. Uh-huh. I mean, I don't think it's a one-to-one comparison, but it, it, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's, yeah. if it's uniquely American. I mean, certainly we still see the holdover of this. I mean, as we've been talking about this character, I'm thinking of all the police procedurals on TV, even now where yeah. it's one rogue detective who beats up a, a suspect to get a confession to save the kidnapped little girl. Of course, we all want that. Right. Mm. And it's all, Oh, why do criminals have to have rights? There's a little girl's life at stake, you know, and they twist us all up and make you feel like you have to work outside of the system. And I mean, they sound just like, I mean, that scene where he shoots the rat and is like, I'm just, del- I'm going to deliver some papers, Here's some papers, rat, to tell you to stop eating this corn. I mean, that was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, and we, I mean, really spot on. We've been doing this for a long time now. Um, we've, this episode's got to be at least over an hour and 15 minutes. And we've been doing this for an hour and 40 minutes. So let's, let's turn to some final thoughts as we just kind of think about um, what we're expecting, what we're hoping for um, something that struck you that you're going to be kind of keeping an eye on as you read the next of the next section. So Angela, my question is whether or not, go ahead. um, My question is who is going to learn more from who rooster from Maddie or Maddie from Mm. rooster. Hmm. Nice. Angelina. All right. So the first line I was always telling my students, a well done book will tell you in the first paragraph, everything you need to know thematically. Right. And so first paragraph, we know this is about vengeance. And so of course, immediately I'm thinking, is this going to be like the count of Monte Cristo? Are we going to learn something about vengeance, justice, and forgiveness? Is that going to be the story? But then through this whole section, feel like our author has been offering a huge justification for vengeance, including the death speech of the man who's hung, who says, it's not, it's not that I shot a man. That's the problem. It's that I shot the wrong man. (laughs) If I shot the right man, I wouldn't be hanging. And I thought, okay, so like, there's just all these signs, right? That there's, that in this world, there's nothing wrong with vengeance. You just got to kill the right guy. And also the failure of the, of the law. She, she's really trying to go through the legal means. So my, what I'm curious about as I go is to see if how much this theme of vengeance and justice is developed and what are we going to learn more about that? And, and, is it a, and, and is it a different set of rules when you're in the Wild West? Hmm. It might very well be. Hmm. And one of the things I'll be interested in is if that's the case, if they are a different set of rules, is that right or wrong? Is that a necessity that we can put up that we can morally be okay with or do we need to question that and what does that mean for the next episode let's let's uh do it's let's end with in the book that we have which is the movie tie-in book that looks like the the um like a kind of a wanted poster let's go through page has got a gunshot dripping with blood on the cover it's awesome yep that's the one let's go through uh page 111 then that's two more sections that will basically allow us to do four episodes in the book so um great 40 pages or something um so that's that's it i guess um so you let's see so we'll do the next two sections and then, like i said after that we'll do 
unless Tim wants to fight me on it again. Tim, you okay with doing uh, Code of the Woosters and then Hannah Coulter? It's fine. That's great. <laughs> yeah, because Bertie Wooster is also an outlaw cowboy with a code of honor, and he just writes all the wrongs. And I do <laughs> want to point out that Donna Tart, who read the audiobook, actually I know. refers to uh, Bertie Wooster in the afterword that she wrote in this version of the book. So, uh, No way! Well, I'm saving the afterwards to read afterward but i did see that she wrote it does she really cool. she is for the sake of our listeners a very decorated novelist herself she won I've didn't actually heard the gold bench win the pulitzer about five years ago yeah i think oh, it did, did it? yeah i'm pretty sure yeah and her, on to her be book is, if any of our readers want like just a page turner of a book um the oh my gosh now i've forgotten the name of it it's one of her books um google it google it here i'll do it right now Donna. Well, i also Sorry, wanted to just, you guys. While doing that i want to put in a quick word for charles portis everything he writes is rem- is just incredible he's got the dog of the south uh nor norwood masters of atlantis masters of atlantis is is an absolutely just a hilarious book about this guy who gets caught up in like um uh, Knights Templar type stuff or something like that. And it's, it's this comedy of he thinks he's part of this um, this sort of club that has like all the secrets to medieval times and all that kind of stuff. So he writes Westerns and medieval tales. Well, there you go. Well, it takes place in modern times, but he thinks he has all the secrets. It's like a, it's like a modern Knights Templar type thing. Um, uh, the Dog of the Is South. Is this guy I mean, still I, alive? I'm like, look, he, so he wrote this in 1968. He's still alive, yeah, unless something happened to him recently. But, yeah, he's still alive. You can get his books at the library or on Amazon or whatever. But um, he is he is excellent. And he's the, you know, as the back of the book says, Charles uh, Roy Blunt Jr. said that Charles Portis could be Carmen McCarthy if he wanted to, but he'd rather be funny, which I, which I, which I like. The Secret History by Donna Tart is a delightful book. And uh, friends of classical education will find some, they'll be a little bit simpatico with it because it takes place in a small classical school. A murder takes place in a small classical school in modern day U.S. Really fun book. So it's nonfiction? (laughs) (laughs) All right, with that, let's go. Uh, For Angelina Stanford and for Tim McIntosh and for all of us here at Cersei, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time on Close Reads. Enjoy True Grit. Thank you.